0: wonderful. Please take your seats. Well, it's nice to see you five o'clockers again after uh, a break. I was on holiday last week, so um, spent some time up in Durham, which was the place where I was at university. had a good time there, so I'm very grateful to Jonathan Miller for talking about the Methodists last week. And we've got two more of these Sundays left, and Today I'm going to be speaking about the primitive Methodists, and then next Sunday we'll be looking at the Salvation Army. Uh, these come from my book, which is available only for three pounds, of uh, Land of Hope and Glory, British Revival Through the Ages. You can get that from the bookshelf and store at the, uh, at the end of the um, service. And I recommend it to you for three pounds, and uh, it allows you to go in-depth. And it gives a snapshot of different moves of God in Great Britain over the years. And the reason that we're doing this series is because God works through history. I think sometimes one of the dangers is is that whenever there's a new generation of Christians that arise, they they tend to, if they're not careful, think that God is going to start all over again with them. And uh, often a new generation can dismiss the generation that just came before them as irrelevant or no longer modern. And we have to work, realize that God always works through the generations. Not everything in every Christian generation is worthy of note, but there is, there is all, God is always at work in his church, isn't he? And so when we look at church history, what, we, what we're looking at is the strand of God's work through his church and what we can learn from Christians' past as well as Christians' presence about how they encountered God, and uh, you'll find that if you study different Christian moves and different Christian movements, you'll find that there's things that they knew about God that we don't know today. We have to restore. There's a certain arrogance I think about modern Christians. We tend oops, my glasses have gone. We tend to think that uh, we know it all. And we look back on former generations and we're very quick to point out their faults and failures, uh, but we don't look into their light and their mirror to see that maybe they had some things that we didn't. When we look at movements of God and revivals that take place, although we never know how God is going to move next because God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, yet there are principles uh, in all moves of God uh, that come from Scripture and that, and that we can remark on, look, look upon. And especially in times of great darkness. How many of you know we're in times of great spiritual darkness? Uh, if we don't recognize that, we've, we're very much asleep and slumbering. In times of great darkness, when, t- when it appears that the church is on the back f- foot, sometimes going to see what God, in, God has done in history can encourage us. We can say and pray, Lord... Do it again. And God often moves during the darkest of periods. But uh, we shouldn't assume that because it's a dark period, God is going to move. Because God is also looking for a response from his church to move. He's looking for partners. And so last week, uh, Jonathan looked at a brief history of John Wesley and the Methodists. And today, we're going to look, and we can have the first PowerPoint up, Michelle, at the primitive Methodists. I remember when I first came across or noticed the first primitive Methodist chapel. I was a student in Durham, and uh, I was walking around, I think actually it was in one of the mining villages on the outskirts, and I noticed that in nearly every mining village there was a chapel on the main street, even if it was no longer uh, in operation. And I went to have a look at one, I thought, ah, another one of these Methodist chapels but then i noticed that on the front door it wasn't a, it didn't say methodist chapel but it said primitive methodist chapel and i thought to myself what on earth is a primitive methodist chapel i've never heard of that i quite liked the idea i thought i thought maybe these came before the methodists because it was primitive i had no idea at all so when i began to study this movement of primitive methodists i was very excited to see what I learned, because the primitive Methodists were seeking to um, get back to the apostolic roots of their movements that had actually been lost. I want to show you a primitive Methodist battle hymn before we get into the history. They didn't just have hymns, these primitive Methodists, they had battle hymns. I think they believed that worshipping God and Proclaiming great truths was a type of spiritual warfare, not only strengthening their souls and glorifying God, but perhaps also dismissing the enemy that, that, that was so often trying to oppress them. Speaking, I'll just read it for you: Apollyon, that, that's uh, uh, the word, the Greek word for destroyer, that's sometimes used of Satan in the Bible. So, Apollyon's armies we must fight and put the troops of hell to flight to gain the heavenly land. Come on, ye soldiers in the rear. Be stout and bold and never fear. Come join the conquering band. I like that verse, and as many other verses and hymns like it, it was that aggressive, uh, standing up for Jesus, going out and, 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 and not staying at, in their churches, but going out and taking the gospel to the land. And in fact, this this type of sort of aggressive Preaching of the gospel, this understanding of battle, w- would have a great influence on William Booth and uh, the Salvation Army. Well, why did they have a primitive Methodist? What, what, what on earth did they come out? What, weren't the Methodists doing uh, well enough without them having to have a group called the primitive Methodists? Well, I don't know if Jonathan mentioned last week, but I've got a quote from John Wesley here to show you. John Wesley, by the end of his life, was deeply concerned with the state of the Methodist churches. And they had had a powerful time. I mean, mean, Wesley and, and, and the Methodists had saved Great Britain from the type of revolution that had taken place in France. This is common knowledge to even secular historians. They turned the tide of the nation. Hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ and And their influence would last right into the 1800s, and even today we can see their their influence. But John Wesley was concerned. He was concerned that Methodism had grown so quickly and so greatly with so many congregations that people were not as aggressive in their proclaiming as the gospel as they used to be. Almost as if, oh, haven't we done well? Look at all the Methodist assemblies and churches and groups. Maybe we should just some, spend some time consolidating the great work that we had done. Well, obviously, it's important to consolidate great works, but Wesley didn't like the fact that the consolidation of what was happening in the many Methodist churches that had sprung up during his lifetime, what was being the focus, and that the type of pioneering evangelism that so marked the great growth period of Methodism, was deeply on the wane. And he said this, Preach abroad in every place. Mind not lazy or cowardly Methodists. It's cooping yourselves up in rooms that dampens the work of God. there, There will never be any purpose in this work without going out into the highways and the hedges and compelling sinners to come in. You see, Methodism has been so popular and been such a popular move of God that it was a victim to its own success. You know, when our own senior minister, Colin Dye, uh, became senior minister here at Kensington Temple, there's a story that he tells, it's not a secret story, it's quite a few years ago now when he first became senior minister in 1990, and um, a number of people that were then on the church board had said to him, well, we've seen some great growth under uh, Eldon Corsi, and wonderful expansion under Wynne Lewis, and now your senior minister. We think it should be a time of consolidation. We should focus on the, the, the great gains that we've got over the years. And uh, Colin took that as, uh, as a deceiving move of the enemy against, against him. And in fact, Rather than just consolidate where we come to, we planted over 150 churches in the next 10 years. There's always a danger that that which gave you the success, when you get the success, you'll turn your back on the very ingredients that caused you to grow, if I'm mixing my metaphors a little bit. And so that was John Wesley, deeply concerned with the state of the uh, Methodist church. And at the dawn of the 19th century, that's the 1800s, remember the 1700s, that wonderful move with the the preaching of Whitfield and the Methodist movement. Well, even by 1800s, Wesley was concerned already with the coldness of some of the Methodist churches and the inward looking. And by the start of the 1800s, um, that great revival had begun to subside. Now, that doesn't mean that it influences had begun to subside. On the contrary, it was during the 1800s that, that a lot of those that had come to Christ in, in the Methodist uh, movement, it would have an ongoing society uh, effect. Often this is what happens if, with revival. There's a delayed action. There's a move or a reviving move of God, and many souls come into the kingdom. But you don't often immediately see the whole society turning around. What tends to happen is that, uh, that the generation after that become Christianized. And I mean that in a good way. And so, for example, a great example of the Methodist revival was um, uh, William Wilberforce who in the second generation, the 1800s, although he was an Anglican, he got saved in a Methodist church, and the influence of Methodism even then played a great part in him and his role in fighting the evils of slavery. But having said that, the, the, uh, say, after saying that the afterglow of the Methodist revival was still to burn on in social reform, um, the desire and the hunger for God And the desire for souls was certainly not what it was like uh, in the time of Wesley and Whitfield. The Methodist movement had grown so rapidly that, like many moves of God, it had become a victim of its own success. The energies once marshaled for the conquest of winning souls were now absorbed by the vast maintenance demand of existing churches and members. We see this in large churches that often grow very rapidly. That in the early years of rapid growth, all the energy is going into the growth. But then, unless you're very, very careful, what can happen is you can grow to a certain size. And then all of a sudden, all your energy is going into maintaining what you've already got. And you take energy and power from frontline service of the gospel into maintaining a large congregation or, or a large movement. This happens again and again again. And again, field preaching and street witnessing were no longer common amongst the Methodists in the early 1800s. They were too busy pastoring the churches uh, that that they had already planted. And, uh, And during this period where they were beginning, generally speaking, to look in on themselves, the nation was sliding back spiritually again. The rural villages and countryside were the first to backslide in powerful times at this way. Cruel sports like cockfighting and bull baiting and bare-knuckle fights were taking place all over Britain. And uh, bank holidays were often a scene of debauchery and sin, where people would would have their festivals and their feasts and what they called their wakes, and uh, all manner of drunkenness would take place. Um... It was dangerous to travel through many villages at this time for fear of being molested or or insulted, and the first 20 years of the 1800s have been seen by some as the darkest of the whole of that century. Britain was at war with France for much of this period, heavy taxation, unemployment, the returning of battle-hardened soldiers, bad harvests, parts of the nation in famine, causing much vandalism, and all types of uh, crime. Now, in the midst of this darkness, disillusion, and despair, where a lot of Methodism had turned in on itself and was no longer concerned with what was going on on, in the nations, there became what we're going to know as an explosion known as primitive Methodism. And one of the men that was... uh, very important to this explosion of primitive Methodism was a man called Hugh Bourne, uh, who is often considered its founder. Now, uh, he struggled with conviction of sin for 20 years. He, he, he knew he needed to be saved, but he didn't know how. Uh, and this is one of the points. If the Methodists had been active in their evangelism as they used to be in the times of Wesley, then the probability was that that man would have heard the gospel. I wonder how many people there are in Britain today that are struggling. There is some sort of conviction or acknowledgement of their state that something's wrong in their lives, that something's wrong in the world, but they don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to face it. They may have some general impression that there's a God in heaven, but they don't know what the God, which God it is and what God thinks about it, and all all that they're waiting for is a Christian to come and bring them the gospel, and they would be saved. I think Hugh Bourne was in a situation like that, not one active Christian to tell him the plan of salvation. But in 1799, the year before the new century, the Holy Spirit bypassed the church, and uh, he found himself reading the sermons and letters of the founders of the Methodists, or the founder, John Wesley, and the famous Methodist John Fletcher of Maidley. And by reading the works of Wesley and such, the founders and evangelists, he got saved. So here is a man who, because the Methodists were not preaching the gospel like they used to do, he got saved by the direct ministry and writing of of, uh, John Wesley. And he testifies, he says, I believed in my heart, grace descended, and Jesus manifested himself to me. My sins were taken away in that instant, and I was filled with all joy and peace in believing. I never knew or thought anyone could in this world have such a foretaste of heaven. In an instant... I felt I loved God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I felt a love to all mankind and a desire that all, whether friends or enemies, might be saved. I heard an inward voice saying, thy iniquity is forgiven and thy sin covered. A great assurance came to him immediately. He'd been saved through the direct testimony and literature of the early Methodists, but he himself, at this time, he was ignorant of what contemporary Methodism was like. Board obviously, wanted to see a local Methodist church. He'd read about the founders. He got saved through the ministry of, of, of John Wesley. And so it was natural that he would try and seek out his local Methodist assembly. And so he'd heard about... The local Methodist church, he sorted out and found that there was what they call a love feast or a communion service, an agape meal with communion. But he found that he could only go if he'd been given a ticket. You could only go to these feasts if you had a ticket. Admission was by a ticket. Can you imagine that? And if you wanted to have a ticket, then you would have to be a member of the Methodist movement. Already he was thinking this was a bit strange, a bit close to society, that are you a member or are you not? Well, he went to the Methodist church, um, but he was concerned that what he had read about and what he had experienced from the founding fathers of that movement was not seen in the churches or the second generation Methodists that he was getting to know, Wesley's Burning torch for souls, seemed to have been fumbled and dropped by the second generation Methodists. But Bourne was determined to pick up that burning torch. He was already inflamed with the saving message. He knew what God had done in his life and he wanted to see it in all those that, that, that he could. Most pioneer moves, I've said, of God are dulled and made impotent by the second or third generation. That's why we at Kensington Temple need to be more careful than anybody else, I believe, in Great Britain today. Because of the things that God has blessed us and graced with us in this church. From the days of George Jeffreys, when healing revivals took place in this church. The days of great growth and, and, and everything that God has blessed us with. We are more at risk in backsliding from the things of God... Than perhaps some churches that have not yet tasted what we have in our history. We are at risk to think that we have a name before God and to rest on the laurels of our history. This is a risk that comes to every place that has experienced some sort of blessing of God. And it's the same with the Methodist generally speaking. It's a sad but true fact that if you wish to find out what really is of God in a movement, you will usually only find it undiluted in the first generation of the pioneers of that movement. The succeeding generations in the name of progress often kill the very principles that birthed it, gave it life, and caused it to succeed. And often the second and third generations are not prepared to pay the price of following Christ that those that came before them did. They live off and spend, if I can use that phrase, the inheritance of their spiritual fathers. You know, I, I, I know uh, uh, a family right now and, and uh, the uh, mother and father are out of work and, and they've been out of work for about three, four years now. But the thing was, they received a great inheritance um, from houses and things. And so they have got this great inheritance. And because of that... They don't see the need to go out and work. They are simply relaxing, doing nothing of any value, if you know, they're not even doing charity work or anything like that. They are simply living on the inheritance that their forefathers and mothers spent time working for. And I was thinking to myself, what's going to happen when their children grow up? At this rate, there's going to be nothing left that this great inheritance that they're spending without going to work themselves is dwindling for the third generation. I think that can be a picture of of spiritual inheritance. I mean, this this building that we are um, sitting in today was was made at a great price and cost to people in the, I think, 1840s or 50s. The first president of the Evangelical Alliance laid the stone outside here, of, called Hawbury Chapel. And here we are, sitting in it today. We need to recognize what people have paid the price for in the past that we're enjoying today and say, Lord, what are you asking us to do? To take this further, not to allow it to recede. Well, uh, Hugh Bourne comes from the area of Staffordshire in a place called M- Mau Cop. And uh, what he did is he thought, well, what shall I do? I'm going to share my testimony. That's what he thought he would do. He wasn't a great preacher. He hadn't learned much and wasn't being taught much. But he knew the experience that he had with God and that he could share with others. What God had done in his life, he believed God could do in others. So what he did is he wrote out his testimony of salvation in a tract. And then around Staffordshire, he began to hand it out. Soon, two men had come to Christ, and they, too, began to witness to all that they found. Four more were saved and were grounded in the assurance of their new faith, and they began a prayer meeting each Tuesday. And that prayer meeting's focus was souls, new souls. And um, very soon, people became added to their number, uh, and got added and added and added. And the new converts were known as, with the surrounding Villages in Staffordshire, they said, oh, these converts, are they Methodists? They didn't call them Methodists. They called them conversation preachers. Conversation preachers. Why? They weren't formally preaching from a pulpit, but they were going around, sharing their faith with whoever they met, praying for the lost. And so people said, "They're, they're conversation preachers. They don't preach at us, but they witness to us. They tell them their stories. They talk to us about the Lord. And, uh, uh, and the prayer meetings had a spirit of revival in them, engendered by this desire for soul winning. The volume of their prayer meetings in whichever house they met could apparently be, met, be heard miles away. One woman, one and a half miles away from a prayer meeting that Bourne was leading, she was known for her nasty attitude, swearing and blasphemy. She could hear the distant rumblings of a prayer meeting. And was so touched by it that she was converted there and then. As she heard the loud cries and prayers, even though she couldn't make out the words, something took place in her life and she was saved. At another of their prayer meetings, they began to pray for a man who'd literally lost his mind. And had been committed to one of those awful mental asylums. And he had to be chained up in the house for the safety of all they decided they would pray for him. As they prayed for him, he began to become wild in his actions. John Ritson, who was there, records this. As the meeting rose in faith, he fell like an ox, but when it sank into doubt, he sprang up again in fury. And so the alternations of faith And fear on the part of the people were regularly accompanied in the maniac with alternations of fury and falling down. Until at length, faith won a great victory and the poor sufferer broke into loud praises to God. The prayer meetings were loud not because they were Pentecostal. There's a great danger in Pentecostal tradition of praying loud prayers down microphones because we think it's the Holy Spirit. It's something I'm constantly guarding about and telling people to be careful about because standard prayer mode of Kensington Temple is to take a microphone, ask it to be turned up as high as possible and yell in tongues or to shout in tongues. But doing that as a form is nothing. It's meaningless. These people didn't cry out like loud cries for form or, or for, for religious substance. It was an expression of, of the intensity and fervency that was in their hearts, and unfortunately, sometimes we Pentecostals who were born in that fervency will take the loudness and the microphone, and actually, the fer- fervency—it's not really there at all. It's just form. You know, religious practices can hit any movement of God, but not here. They were loud and intense. Jesus himself offered both prayers and supplication with loud cryings because he knew he would be heard. Bourne described the prayer meetings with the scripture, Ezra 3.13, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. When Hugh Bourne first preached, he was so shy that he would preach with the hand in front of his eyes so that he couldn't see the congregation. This was a trait that even in his later years uh, would still come to him, he would be preaching, And even though he'd preached a lot and over the years and got used to it, his hand would still often rise so that he could preach so that he couldn't see the congregation. In fact, there was one time when he even put a bag on his head and preached. But shyness was not an excuse. You see, though he was shy, he didn't hold back. He might have put a bag on his head or put a hand in front of his eyes. But he spoke and revival fire caught the people that he spoke to. One of the main characteristics of these primitive Methodists, they weren't called that yet, was that as they grew, they realized that other people needed to catch fire. They were evangelizing, but what about all these backslidden Methodists and other church people who had once been doused with the flames of the Holy Spirit and had a burden for the lost, but now weren't interested at all? Surely some of those could be set on fire as well. And they were influenced by an American evangelist called Lorenzo Dow who came over and preached the gospel. He was described as a comet in the religious world, visited England three times, and told testimonies about the great camp meetings in America. And Hugh Bourne felt impressed that these camp meetings could play a significant role in igniting Christians with the fire and burdens for the lost. Now, the idea of camp meetings originated in the frontiers of North America. They were outdoor meetings that usually lasted for several days. People would come from from far and near to camp. Large numbers would gather with food and tents. A clearing would be made, and a number of preaching platforms and stands would be erected. The meetings were directed by a number of preachers who who relieved one another uh, as one preached, another one would carry on the service. Sometimes you could go to different parts of the camp to hear different preachers. And, uh, and and sometimes in some of these camp meetings, the Holy Spirit moved so powerfully, shouting and shaking and rolling on the ground, often accompanied a tremendous spiritual and emotional release that came upon people. Well, born like the sound of that, setting people on fire. And so they, they had their first camp meeting uh, mo camp cop camp meeting on the 31st of may 1807 there you can see them i've seen this hill in staffordshire there's actually a primitive methodist uh, museum that's up there and there they are this was unknown in england at the time all these primitive methodists gathering coming together encouraging friends that were saved and unsaved come with us come to this camp meeting and they're gathering there to hear the preaching of the, of the word of God. Also, Bourne wanted to use the camp meeting to counter the evil influence of all these festivals and what they called wakes on, uh, in rural England on bank holidays. Now, these wakes had nothing to do with funerals. They were holidays originally to celebrate the dedication of churches like bank holidays. The whole community took the day off. And that's where drunkenness and all kinds of evil took place. Born believed that if he arranged camp meeting around the August wait meetings and the bank holidays, that he could attack the heart and the engine of sin. Where they were gathering to sin, he would set up gatherings of righteousness. And so 1807 there, well, that was the first meeting. And uh, Bourne was very aware of the Wesleyan roots of outdoor evangelistic rallies and believed that the spirit of field evangelism of Wesley and Whitfield could be captured in these camp meetings. Unlike the original field evangelism of Whitfield and Wesley, the American style used many different preaching stands and prayer areas were adopted. Mocop was seen as the romantic beginning of the primitive Methodists Methodists. some have referred to the Maokop meeting as the Mount Carmel of the primitive Methodists. It's even found in their poetry, and you'll see this in a slide in a few moments' time, not yet though. In their poetry, the little cloud increaseth still, the first arose upon Mo Hill. Well, the camp meeting started with stormy clouds, but it dissipated into beautiful sunshine. There was a lot of prayer and fasting that had been given to this meeting. And early in the morning, radical conversions began to take place. People wept and mourned over their sin until, with help, they prayed through to assurance of salvation, with shouts of joy and liberty. By lunchtime, three preaching stands were swamped with listeners, while earnest prayer continued to fuel the camp revival fires. Hugh Bourne himself describes the scene of this first camp meeting. The people were nearly all under my eye, and I had not conceived that such a multitude was present. Thousands hearing with an attention as solemn as death, presented a scene of most sublime and awfully pleasing grandeur that my eyes ever beheld. The preachers seemed to be fired with an uncommon zeal, and an extraordinary unction attended their word, while tears were flowing and sinners trembled on every side. Next slide, please. And on this next slide, you see another picture of there they are in one of the method, primitive Methodist camp meetings, the little cloud increaseth still that first arose upon Mo Hill. Well, camp meetings were held again and again, especially as I've said, during these great feast days, so that there was an alternative for people to the drinking and the debauchery and the violence of these holidays? What alternative is there for people today on bank holidays and holidays? What alternative do those people have? It's very easy to read the newspapers and see the pictures of people drunk at midnight in different cities. What's the alternative? Until the primitive Methodists came along, there hadn't been an alternative. Uh, We read in one of the histories of primitive Methodists that what was done on a large scale continued to be done on a small scale by the missionaries as they preached and travelled. It's one thing to denounce vice and sinful pleasure in a comfortable chapel. It's quite another to wrestle with them in the marketplace as the early missionaries frequently did. Now, these camp meetings were also the occasion for Hugh Bourne to be expelled, expelled from the Methodist church. Many Methodist leaders didn't like the idea of camp meetings. They didn't. They were frightened of their power base shifting to the leaders and of these these new radicals. Instead of recognizing the revival and the return to their primitive roots, they cut it off to preserve what they already had in their own leadership. They thus deprived the movement, the whole movement, of a God-given plan to return it to its primitive roots and its original apostolic call. To begin with, the breakaway group was known as the Camp Meeting Methodists, but this name was not really liked. And um, the the word primitive Methodist came during a, a meeting where some of these new Methodists were meeting together, and James Crawford quoted the closing words of John Wesley's farewell address to the preachers of Chester Circuit in the year 1790. Fellow labourers, said Wesley, wherever there is an open door, enter in and preach the gospel. If it be two or three, under a hedge or a tree, preach the gospel. Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it's done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is more room. Wesley then lifted his hands, and with tears flowing down his cheeks, repeated, And yet there is room. And yet there is room. The quotation given, Crawford said, Mr. Chairman, if you have deviated from the old usages, I have not. I still remain a primitive Methodist. And the message stuck. Many of the pioneer revivalists that arose from the primitive Methodist movement were not educated. They were... were, um, Fresh off the street. Many of them were working class. This was very much a working class movement. And we've got a plate uh, to commemorate some of these, these preachers. Hugh Bourne, there at the top, and uh, you probably can't see, but at the top it says, Ye must be born again. And then around the size, it's got that famous, um, oh, I can't read it now, I'm getting dizzy. Uh, what began in Mo Hill, may it grow. St- Greater still, or whatever that, 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 that quote was. The little cloud increaseth still that first arose on Mo Hill. That, uh, for example, John Benton was a fire-filled evangelist, very little grammar or command of the English language, and a local preacher mocked him because of it. He said you can hardly put a sentence together grammatically. It's a disgrace that you're preaching. However, on one Good Friday... Benton preached to a group of miners from the text, It is finished. And so powerful was the conviction that many miners slumped to the floor under the power of God. The local preacher was astonished, he was in the congregation. And Benton said to him, as he pointed to the scene, This is grammar. John Oxterby, a Yorkshireman from East Riding, was known for praying six hours a day to prepare him for evangelistic conquest. A seaside resort in Yorkshire named Filey, I've been there many times, was extremely resistant to the primitive Methodists' gospel preaching. And some were considering giving up on the town. When he asked what he thought about the matter, he said, What do I think? I think the Lord has a great work to do at Filey. And if you send me, I will go and live upon potatoes and salt and lie on a board if necessary before it should be given up. Well, he was sent to Filey and when he saw it in the distance, he fell to the ground behind a hedge and cried out for, the, for hours for God to give him the town. A passerby heard him pray in broad Yorkshire direct, "'Don't make a fool of me, God. "'I told them at Bridlington, "'you were, gonna give, you were going to revive your work, "'and you must do, or "'I'll never be able to show my face among them again. "'And then what will the people say "'about playing, praying and believing?' "'After a long while,' He got the assurance in the spirit, and he cried, "It is done, Lord! It is done! Finally, is taken! Finally, is taken!" And sure enough, a powerful revival ensued, ensued that revolutionized the town for Jesus. Thomas Batty, there's a Yorkshire name for you, the Apostle of Weardale, as he was known, would become known knew how to travail in prayer for souls, and was known to go through Gethsemane-type experience of intercession before each revival. Prayer and soul-saving were highly prized in the search for new ministers. Hugh Bourne responded to a ministerial selection board that opposed a young man entering the ministry because of his lack of theological training. Hugh Bourne said, What he is as a preacher, I don't know but he is famous at praying and soul-saving, and these are the chief things in a man entering our ministry. When it came to women, they were also given free reign to preach the gospel. And um, like John Wesley himself, the Primus Methodist believed that women could preach and be anointed to preach. Hundreds of women that were now blocked by later Methodists from ministry were released to their full potential amongst Hugh Bourne and the uh, primitive Methodists. For example, Mary Porthouse. We've got a picture, actually. This isn't Mary Porthouse. This is Annie Tolson, who was the son of a preacher. But unfortunately, this preacher, who was a Methodist preacher, he used to preach in churches and then get drunk afterwards. And as a teenager, she was thrown out of the house by her drunken preacher father. And she got set on fire by the Lord. And, uh, and, 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 and I tell you what, She was strong on the evils of drink of that time. Um, But Mary Porthouse was a traveling preacher. Listen to this. She would often walk 12 miles and preach three times on a Sunday. In eight weeks, she traveled 260 miles on foot, preaching the gospel to every person she met. A primitive Methodist superintendent commissioned Elizabeth Smith as a preacher. Her instructions were simple. She was given a map of a road, some verbal directions and told, you'll have to raise your own salary, he said, two guineas a quarter. Oh, she said, I did not know I was to have anything, was her joyful response. How refreshing the response is in the light of so much ministerial professionalism today. She was just pleased she was allowed to raise her own funds to preach the gospel. She soon began meetings meetings in an old barn in face of much opposition. On her way to preach at one meeting, she found the road to the barn lined with thugs clutching eggs and stones. Elizabeth was not sure what to do except she could not turn back. She began to sing a hymn to the Lord. Apparently she had a beautiful voice. As the leader of the gang heard her singing, he felt something stir inside and said to his men, not one of you shall touch that woman. She preached with power that day. Many of the songs that came from the Primitive Methodists, I've mentioned this, had a passion and expressed the values. You see, our hymns and our songs are meant not only to worship the Lord and to praise him, but they're also meant to express the passions and values and truths that we hold dear to our lives. That's why in the Wesleyan revival, so many marvellous hymns that have stood the test of time and still fill people with the Spirit when they sing them today. Why? Because they were written in that environment, and hearts on fire were writing hymns on fire. And so they would sing songs like, We are fighting for our God, let trembling cowards fly. We'll stand unshaken, firm and fast, with Christ to live and die. Some of these songs came by powerful inspiration, some just in the nick of time. Joseph Spore was leading an outdoor evangelistic event in Brompton when a huge man, furious with the Christians, ran to attack him. As the man pulled back his fist to strike, a new song came into Joseph's heart that he immediately sang, What a captain I have got. Is not mine a happy lot? The man froze. Paralysed by the song, he allowed the evangelist to move forward in the service. It was a true song of deliverance. Often in the midst of imminent violence, the primitive Methodists would engage in spiritual warfare through hymns. Once when a hostile crowd was about to stop an evangelist from preaching, women formed a ring around him by joining hands and singing, wicked men I'm not to fear, though they persecute me here, though they may my body kill, yet my king's on Zion's hill. The enemies did not attempt to break through the ring of praise. Other songs contained in passion's invitations for sinners to find God. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. They have their own 19th century March for Jesus versions. Marching down the streets, singing their powerful hymns to great effect. They were so militant in their faith and boldness and witness that people would often just stand there stunned by their fervent singing and absolute boldness and witness. This is why they had such an influence on the later Salvation Army that we'll be looking at next week. You can see traces here, can't you, if you know anything about the Salvation Army, of the fervor of the Salvation Army. It was was inspired by the primitive Methodists of which... um, Uh, William Booth uh, knew knew much. The Primitive Revival impacted the nation in a powerful grassroots movement. And a 100 years later, 100,000 people met for the centenary camp meeting at Mocop, where it all began. Many of the social reforms of the 19th century arose partially due to to the effect of this great revival. Charles Spurgeon, you ever heard of him? He, he's in the book that I've written. Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher and revival, he came to Christ at a Primitive Methodist meeting on a rainy night. I've said General Booth was deeply impacted by them. Eventually, the Primitive Methodists were united with the Methodist movement. But even today, if you can see the chapel door on the next um, um, slide, that's it. Even today, uh, you can see, as I did, In the north of England, where this primitive Revival Methodist was very strong, you can see chapels birthed in this revival, many, many chapels, with the word primitive Methodist chiseled over the door. If you ever see that, you will uh, hopefully now understand the fire of God that was behind that movement. For I remember when I first saw that sign, I I had no idea what, what, what had been amongst us. So there's many things to learn from these people. And uh, next week, we'll finish this short series. I didn't, haven't done every uh, movement of God in this, in this book. That's why I encourage you to get it, read it at your own time. But next week, we're going to finish on the Salvation Army and William Booth. And you will say, wow, they're very similar. They're, they're very similar. And, and you'll see the links there. And then in uh, the next couple of months, we're going to be, do, we're going, to be going back to the scriptures. And I'm going to be doing a two-month study on spiritual warfare what it is and also what it isn't. God bless you.